Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 78 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for what is another Q&A. And before we get stuck into the questions, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to tell your family and friends, repost it onto your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can find the link in the show notes below, or you can head over to any of our Instagram bios as well. Epic. All right. So let's get stuck right into it. So this first topic that we're actually going to be discussing today is in regards to refeeds and having high carbohydrate days during a dieting phase. And this is a topic that Jack and I get asked about a lot. And I thought it would be great to discuss today because anyone who listens to the Revive Stronger podcast with Steve Hall, I would highly recommend that podcast. If you guys have listened to one of the most recent episodes, he actually interviewed Dr. Bill Campbell. So Dr. Bill Campbell, he is a researcher over at the University of South Florida, and he actually has a lab where he pretty much specifically just studies physique athletes, which is really freaking cool. Kind of wish I went to that uni. It would be pretty awesome. But uh, Dr. Bill Campbell, he's actually just released some of the data on a recent refeed study that he did. And this is the first study of its kind. And so Jack and I thought that we would, you know, discuss the results today. So pretty much a little recap of the study. Again, if you guys want much more detail, I would highly recommend going and checking out that Revive Stronger podcast or better yet, actually reading the paper on this study. But essentially what they did is that they took college athletes, they were resistance trained, and they had both males and females in this study. And what they did is they dieted all of these athletes for seven weeks. Now, the thing is, is that there were two different groups. One group was dieting purely every single day for seven weeks. And what they did at the start of the study was they took all of the participants and they identified their maintenance calories. And then what they did for one group is they put them into a caloric reduction of 25% under their maintenance calories for seven days. And they ran that for seven weeks straight. Now the other group, what they did is that they were only dieting for five days of the week. So what they were in is they were in a 35% caloric reduction below their maintenance calories for five days of the week. But then what they did is that two days, which were on the weekends, they brought their calories back up to their predicted maintenance level, and they brought these back up through an increase in carbohydrates. So essentially they were doing five low days and two high days compared to this other group, which was just doing seven low days straight. Now, both of these groups, they were both resistance trained prior to the study. And then during the study, they did commence four resistance training sessions during uh, the week at the lab. So that was controlled for as well. Protein intake, I believe, was set at 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. But, you know, I, I don't think that they identified exactly how many carbohydrates and how many grams of fat per kilogram of body weight they were consuming. Um, so I'm not sure if that was standardized, but I know that on the high carbohydrate days or the, the maintenance calorie days, that group brought their calories back up to maintenance level. So they completed this study for seven weeks. You know, they were monitoring body composition change predominantly. 
And at the end of the study, what they found is that both groups lost a similar amount of body fat, but the group that was doing five low days and two high carbohydrate days, they maintained significantly more muscle mass compared to the other group. And they also maintained significantly a higher rate of their metabolic rate. So at the beginning of the study, you know, they measured resting metabolic rate. And throughout the study, the group that was dieting every single day of the week for seven days straight, they lost about 80 calories below their resting metabolic rate. Whereas the group that was only doing five low days to high days, they only lost around 40 calories below their resting metabolic rate. So pretty much this study, you know, as we can see, because they did a 25% reduction across seven days or a 35% reduction across five days and then two days at maintenance across the week, their caloric intake, it was, you know, it was equivalent. It was the exact same across the entire week. But as we can see, you know, doing this protocol of five low days, two high days across these seven weeks, it did demonstrate that there was a better retention of resting metabolic rate and, you know, better body composition change in terms of retaining lean muscle mass while losing the same amount of fat. So this is a pretty damn cool study, you know, and it is the first of its kind. So obviously there needs to be more literature in this space that comes out. But Jack, you know, what do you think about this? Yeah, I guess it's one of the studies we've all been waiting for to kind of give us a bit more insight into refeeds. But like Tierra and I have been incorporating refeeds for a lot of our clients because anecdotally, we, we know they work for themselves and the evidence behind them kind of, well, not the proven evidence, but the theoretical evidence behind them kind of just makes sense in terms of um, allowing to increase your food from a psychological standpoint. And kind of it does make sense fueling training performance as well. But one of the interesting aspects of the study was that there was actually no performance increase for the individuals that had the high carbohydrate days, which... I mean, is interesting. Like I would have expected that there would have been an increase in performance and potentially that might be because they weren't dieted to the extent that competition prep athletes weren't, what mm-hmm. are, sorry. Uh, so because the diet wasn't a very prolonged diet. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also what I thought was interesting about this study as well is that they were dieting during the week and they were also training during the week. But then the group that was having these refeed days, they were having them on the weekends and I'm pretty sure they weren't, yeah, they weren't training on the weekends. So they actually didn't coincide high carbohydrate days with a training day, which Jack Mm -hmm. and I, we both do for ourselves. We both do with our athletes. And I think that's very logical. And I think that's a very good strategy because if you're increasing the amount of carbohydrates and the amount of food that you're eating, you should be able to uh, put that into a good solid training session, right? So I think that if there were future studies, I think they should really take that into account and really take advantage of that extra fuel and that extra muscle glycogen. And if they would have done that, they might have seen some differences in training Mm -hmm. performance. Yeah, at the same time, though, it is interesting having it on the rest day as well because that could translate to better recovery. Mm -hmm. So like refilling glycogen stores for the next day of training and really does come down to that recovery aspect. So Mm -hmm. 
I mean, maybe that's something we have to try. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's kind of like a mini diet break, you know, uh, coincided with the deload kind of mm. thing, but it's only for two days of the week. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people would struggle with that though, having, especially you having higher days of eating on a rest day. Yeah, it's tough, man. Like I just personally, I can't do it because if I eat a lot of carbs, I'm buzzing, you know, mm. I've got energy. I want to train. I want to put that energy to good use. And You've seen me, right? On a high carb day, if I'm like during diet breaks, you have to have have a rest day. Yeah, I get, (laughs) I get anxious. I get a bit stressed, like not that pleasant to be around. You know, I need to go, (laughs) go lift some weights. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the interesting thing was like what their predictions were for this study. Like then, you know, if training performance wasn't necessarily different between the groups, then what actually caused the lean mass retention? So what they predicted was that by actually increasing carbohydrates on those two days, which two days out of seven days, that's almost a third of the week, right? So a third of the week for seven weeks straight, that is going to have a significant difference. But when we consume carbohydrates, we do have a higher spike in insulin in our body. And we know that insulin is an anabolic hormone and it reduces catabolism, right? So if you have higher insulin levels, insulin is a storage hormone. So it is going to store more carbohydrates. It's going to store more amino acids, and it's also going to store more fatty acids within your cells. But insulin is related to increasing muscle protein synthesis. And generally when you are dieting, you do have lower rates of muscle protein synthesis, which translate into generally muscle protein breakdown and then catabolism and loss of lean body mass. So they did predict that by increasing your carbohydrates and then increasing insulin levels that increased muscle protein synthesis. So these athletes were able to better retain their lean muscle mass, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, what I thought was interesting as well is that they actually didn't, well, I'm pretty sure they didn't actually test uh, or record leptin levels during this study because that's one of the uh, like reasons behind why people suggest you should do high carbohydrate days because when you increase carbohydrates, there is some literature to suggest that you do get an acute response and increase in leptin. And leptin is that hormone, right, that increases meat, you know, and uh, it decreases your appetite as well. So you can increase energy expenditure and not feel as hungry. And it is related to, as well, to thyroid hormone too. But they didn't actually measure that during the study, which I thought was interesting too. So yeah, what, what do you think about, like, and Jack, what do you think about having the two high carbohydrate days back to back because that is generally what we do and you know the reason behind that again is so that you do get that small spike in leptin but you know again it's just an acute spike over two Mm. days so what's your ideas on having a two high carbohydrate days back to back compared to maybe spreading them throughout the week yeah well interesting for most of Tara and I are slightly diff- different on this aspect. Like I actually use three higher carbohydrate days. Mm-hmm. Tara usually does two. Well, I did three toward the very end of comp prep. Yeah. I mean with clients. Oh yeah. With clients generally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, I mean, potentially that could be the difference between male and female because males have more, it's much easier to establish a larger energy deficit with males since mm-hmm. they are on higher calories. So it can be difficult to have three or higher carbohydrate days for females. But I think, again, there are some people that 
advocate for putting them on separate days, like not back to back. But again, just logically for me, it makes more sense to have them back to back. Like one, because potentially if you're very depleted, one high day might not be enough to fully replete you. Mm -hmm. And therefore the second and third day is really helpful there. And the other reason to hormonally, we know that hormones don't necessarily change. I mean, they can change very acutely, but one day might not be enough to actually determine a significant change. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not convinced anyway that three days would be enough to reverse anything chronically. Yeah, but exactly. But it's better than nothing. It's better than having one day standalone and then going back to a low day and then another high day. That's my personal opinion. And the third reason is purely for training performance. Like if, say if you have that a leg day, your hardest training day of the week on the third high day, then you've had two days pre- prior to that of high carbohydrates at maintenance you're feeling much better and anyone who's done that in a comp prep can testify how much better they feel yeah and how much also psychologically like one because one of the things that changes a lot for people in prep is they can't really summon that drive that psychological drive to do that it's it's much harder so that's where having extra extra carbohydrates is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to, again, like I think during this study, it would have been very strategic to implement the high carbohydrate days on training days, right? Like mm. I think that's just a really, really smart strategy. And yeah, absolutely. Those are such good points. And that's why we generally do do consecutive high carb days. It takes, you know, up to 48 hours to maximally synthesize synthesize glycogen in the muscles right and who even knows if you can actually maximally synthesize it in a prep but you can try your absolute best with two or three high days um so yeah those are all i think after three high days you'd be pretty close yeah yeah it'd be good and yeah just like for example what i did during prep is that i would train on a monday and a tuesday in a low carbohydrate state I'd have Wednesday as a rest day, which was also in a low carbohydrate state, but then I would have a high day on Thursday and Friday, right? And on Thursday, I'd have a leg day. On Friday, I would have an upper body day. And then on Saturday, it would be a low carbohydrate day again, but I still had that extra glycogen to carry through to that Saturday session when I'd train legs again. So it's just strategic if you use nutrition to your advantage in that sense. But you know, I have had clients as well who, um, like we tried to implement this on consecutive days, but for example, they were only training legs twice per week. And they're like, you know, what? I'd actually really prefer to have my high carbohydrate days on my lower body days, because I feel like I can push out the other days. Right. And for example, their lower body days might be on a Tuesday and a Friday or a Tuesday and a Saturday. Mm. Um, and in that sense, like if we took the hormonal thing out of the equation, right, which we still, it's kind of up in the air. Is it really influencing leptin? Is it really influencing thyroid hormone? Who knows? Cause it's so acute. If we took that out of the question and we said, okay, what if we had your high carbohydrate days on a Tuesday and a Friday, right? You could load up, you'd have a great session and you could probably still carry a little bit of extra glycogen over into that next Wednesday and your Saturday session. The only other proposition of having them back to back is a replication. Replication. Replication of (laughs) peak week. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's another reason why we do it too. But yeah, if you spread them throughout the week, that could psychologically help you too. Because you're like, okay, cool. I get high carbs today, grind it out for another two or three days. Then I get another high carb day. 
Or some people, you know, like you and me, we like to just grind it out for four or five days, right? And then we get two high days back to back. Then you're ready. You're kind of psychologically ready. You're like, cool, all right, I'm ready for my low days again. Mm. But yeah, that's such a good point. You want to predict- Especially since two of those low days are rest days as well. Mm, it makes it easier, right? Yeah, um, a little bit, kind of. When, when, you're Depends, not in yeah. the, when you're not in the gym for two or three hours, sometimes you're like, man, I could eat because you're like not as distracted, mm. um, but you just do other things, obviously. But yeah, if you have them, <laughs> if you have them, um, depends on what stage in prep you are, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, if you do have them consecutively, just like you said, that is a great way to see how your body's going to respond to a carb up in preparation for peak week. Yeah. yeah and your show day. Mm. Assuming you do a backload approach, it's not. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we actually haven't, neither you or I have actually tried front load approaches ourselves or with mm. either of our clients. We've generally um, have done back loads, but yeah. I'm sure, you know, we will attempt front loads in the future. But yeah, back loads do, have generally done the done the trick, right? Mm. Yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, guys, that's pretty much, I think that was a good discussion on that topic. Highly recommend going out and checking out that Revive Stronger podcast with Bill Campbell. He has an awesome Instagram site as well. Mm, it'd be very factual, yeah. Yeah, it'd be cool to get him on the podcast one day, actually. He's a great podcaster. But uh, yeah, guys, so let's move on to this next topic. So this next question says, can you please discuss the difference between macros versus meal plans and which one would you guys advocate for? So I guess this is the age old debate <laughs> ever since my fitness power came out. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely both definitely work. And it's not like one is bad, one is good. It's ultimately will come down to the individual. Tierra and I do have a bias in terms of the nutritional aspect of probably preferring macros. And if you can optimize macros well and stick to it, then I think macros is better Mm -hmm. unless you regularly change your meal plan like every couple of weeks, which is very annoying. But the thing with meal plans is I think people expect, okay, here's a meal plan. It's you can have it for six months and it'll be fine. But unless you're maintaining your body weight for six months, like how are you going to increase your carbohydrates and stuff? Because if you can't make the meal plan yourself, then do you have the knowledge to then adjust it? Yeah. And it basically comes down to that. And that's one of the main points. The other main point is the lack of food variety. Unless someone makes you a incredible meal plan that takes a lot of work and effort, which... Hint, hint, like a really good dietitian. (laughs) (laughs) And... So you have to be selective with who you get a meal plan from. But if someone makes you a meal plan that has, okay, you're having oats for breakfast every day, lunch, you're having rice and chicken for uh, every day, dinner, you're having some frozen veggies and beef every day, then you're getting literally the same foods every single day. There's little food variety, little diversity in fiber types as well. Imagine if they don't even know what your coach doesn't know what fiber is. You're getting under 30 grams of fiber. You're not getting enough nutrients in terms of the variation from Mm -hmm. different food types. Like there's no dairy in there. So you're not getting calcium. Like it is, it's hard to make a good meal plan is what I'm saying. And if you're following that for six months, then like you're going to have nutritional deficiencies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that would be the biggest issue with very strict meal plans is just that lack of food variety and the potential, you know, for you to actually suffer from a nutrient deficiency, especially 
if you're following it for months on end, because we know that nutrient deficiencies, they don't happen acutely, they happen chronically over a period of weeks and months and years, right? And it's interesting as well, because Eric Helms, a few years ago, he actually wrote an article on mass, which is the monthly application in strength sports. And he actually did this paper on if it fits your macros might be better for your micros too. Mm. And what they did in that study is they actually compared uh, two groups of bodybuilders, those who, com- uh, com- those who consumed very strict meal plans and then those who followed a more IFFYM approach. And it found that those who are on very strict meal plans actually consume on average generally less vitamin E, less vitamin K, you know, and uh, actually a lot less sodium too, which is understandable and potentially even less protein. So if it fits your macros, it just allows for so much more food variety, which I think is so wonderful. And uh, that's the thing, you know, even if someone is going on a meal plan, I think it's so important that they have the knowledge and the skills to still understand what is in their food you know i think that's so important to understand the energy density of certain foods and also the macronutrient breakdown and the micronutrient breakdown to some degree too Mm. as well because then you can make informed choices when you go out and eat so even if you're following a meal plan we all eat pretty similar foods every single day but if you go grocery shopping, right, and they don't have the specific brand of rice that your coach prescribed, okay, you need to know what to do. Like, <laughs> you need to know that, okay, cool, rice has a pretty similar macronutrient profile to, you know, uh, pasta, you know, pretty similar, right? Or something like potatoes, right? Something high in carbohydrates, low in fat. You need to be able to make this sort of decision or like, what if you don't have any knowledge, right? And your coach says you only eat an apple and a banana every single day. You go grocery shopping and there's an apple shortage. Like, what do you do, right? You're like, oh my God, there's no apples. Like, I'm, I'm going to fail my diet. It's like, no, dude, just grab a pear. <laughs> eat another piece of fruit. It's actually going to benefit you to have more variety in your diet. So you need to know what to do, especially, you know, going out like to restaurants and stuff. You need to have this knowledge. And I have worked with quite a number of clients who previous to me, they've worked with coaches on very strict meal plans. And then I need to go through a very large educational component with them, teaching them, you know, how to track their food, teaching them on the energy density and the macronutrient ratios of different foods and how to include more variety in their diet, right? And really enjoy their diet and have more freedom, have more flexibility because that is so important for longevity, right? And uh, sustainability too, and just enjoying the process. And it, it it's very evident, you know, when people don't relate to foods as a type of food, you know, they're, they're like ch- uh, chicken that has the proteins, right? Or <laughs> rice that has the carbs. It's like, no, it's not the proteins or the carbs. Like yes, chicken and rice have protein and carbs, but they ha- also have an abundance of other wonderful nutrients too. So it's looking at food through a different lens. So yeah, if you're going to go on a meal plan, like I think that you still need to know, like you need to have good skills of uh, if it fits your macros first. Yeah. And it can be quite daunting to go from a meal plan to macro counting because 
It's a new skill that you have to learn. Everything's not set out for you. So it can, you can be a bit uncertain in terms of what foods to choose. But, and a lot, a lot of people who do transition from meal plans think, okay, these are good foods, these are bad foods. But as we've discussed, the variety is what's key. So there's no, of course, there are some bad foods, mm-hmm. like, for example, trans fats, but we have to use moderation. And ultimately, the, the increase in variety is going to be really good. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's not saying that macro counting can't, can't be bad because it can. Some people can eat like crap yeah. <laughs> um, through macro counting and they'll also get deficiencies as well. So, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying if you optimize macro counting, I think it will be better for you than being restricted to a meal plan because sure, you might be really dedicated to bodybuilding or your goals, but it doesn't mean you have to be restricted to something like that for years. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, transitioning from that meal plan into macronutrients, right? Like you don't want to change everything at once because again it can be very overwhelming daunting cause some anxiety you can feel a little bit lost and uh freak out a little bit right because it's completely new so what you can do to easily transition over to it is you know you can have a meal plan kind of set structure like okay cool you're gonna eat four times per day but in each uh in each meal i'd like you to choose you know from these different types of foods you know so at breakfast time you know have a protein source that provides you with at least 20 to 30 grams of protein have a whole grain carbohydrate source have a piece of fruit you know uh have you know uh, some sort of serving of fats whether that be some peanut butter or some chia seeds you know or having an egg or some actual cheese or full fat dairy something right so having different options there for each meal uh and just representing pretty much getting a carbohydrate source a protein source a fat source and you know either a serving of fruits or vegetables so you can transition into that and then build upon your skills over time but Man, just the issue I have with meal plans, like I've, I've written meal plans for people before, you know, and uh, I'm a perfectionist, especially when it comes to macros. You know, I like to try to hit things to a T, especially if I'm providing a service for someone who wants to hit things I'd expect to a T as well. So I'll write a meal plan, you know, and I'll try to make it as accurate as possible. And let's say at breakfast time, I said, all right, have, have an orange, right? Um, and then they asked me, they're like, oh, if I don't want an orange, can I have an apple? Like, you can't. Oh, like you can, but like, man, you just screwed up everything. <laughs> because like an orange versus an apple for the same size, an apple's like twice as dense in carbohydrates. You're going to get about mm. twice the amount of carbs. And I'm like, man, but if you have an apple, then I got to take 10 grams of carbs away from somewhere else. Like you might as well just track your macros, dude. Like let's put effort into teaching you that so you can stand on your own two feet with your two thumbs on your phone on my fitness pal, you know, let's do it. Cause like, oh, like, uh, I'm, I'm not going to do a meal plan if it's going to be half ass. And like, if you keep having to change things, like there's, there's no point. So yeah. Yeah. But that's not to say, you know, at the, especially at the end of a comp prep, you know, like I said, a lot of people eat similar foods every single day and that's okay. As long as across the day, you're still getting in a wide variety of nutrients and it's okay to be in a rhythm and be in routine with the types of foods that you eat. As long as there's variety there, 
But at the same time, if something happens, you know, like they run out of a food at the supermarket, you should have the knowledge and the skills to be able to replace that with something else that's just as nutritious and still has a similar energy and macronutrient profile. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> All Next right. Topic. Next topic. So this is a good one. This one says, what are your thoughts on walking after a meal to help with insulin sensitivity? So I think for active individuals, it's helpful, but it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. If you're active, then it's not like going for a walk after eating is going, you're still going to store, if you're insulin sensitive, you're still going to store your carbohydrates that you've consumed very effectively. And that's what insulin is for. It's, it is stimulated upon consumption of um, protein and carbohydrates and fat as well. Exercise is unique though, because Basically, insulin stimulates receptors called GLUT4 receptors, and they're responsible for uptaking carbohydrate. And exercise stimulates GLUT4 receptors independent of insulin. So that's why going for a walk or doing activity after eating is kind of, or exercise in general is doted as something that is useful, mm-hmm. um, especially for people who are insulin resistant who, or, who, or who have type 1 or type 2 diabetes because it'll help you uptake glucose um, without needing insulin. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's why exercise is so awesome, especially for that type 2 diabetic population. But guys, I think that for the majority of healthy, active individuals, like they just don't have faith in their pancreas for some reason to do its job. So the pancreas, it is responsible for releasing insulin into the bloodstream. And it is directly correlated the amount of insulin that you release with the amount of glucose you have in your bloodstream. So when you actually eat something with carbohydrates in it, right, it's broken down into glucose that goes into the bloodstream. And then the glucose is actually able to be taken up by GLUT2 receptors into the pancreas. So that is a non-insulin dependent process. So glucose can pretty much go straight into your pancreas, right? And then the pancreas recognizes how much glucose is in there. And it's like, okay, cool. We've either got like a lot of glucose, a medium amount of glucose, or a little bit of glucose. And in response to that, it will release an appropriate amount of insulin. And that insulin is going to go into your bloodstream too. And it's going to match the amount of glucose. Generally, if you're healthy, right, and everything's functioning properly, and you can take that glucose up into your cells and voila, use it as energy, which is great. So yeah, just have faith in your pancreas generally, you know, if you're healthy, if you're not a type one or a type two diabetic, right? Cause it's going to do its job, but absolutely doing exercise brings that GLUT4 receptor up to the cell surface too. So you can, uh, you know, take up more glucose. And then generally, if you're doing that, you will have lower insulin levels, but having lower insulin levels is only a good thing if you have hyperinsulinemia and you generally do have very high levels of insulin. But you know, sometimes actually just going for a walk after a meal, it's not necessarily just for insulin sensitivity, right? It's actually just like, sometimes it makes you feel a little bit more awake. Like personally, I find that because sometimes when you have a big meal, right? A lot of the blood in your volume is redirected to your core and redirected to your gastrointestinal system because it's a top priority for you to start digesting and, uh, you know, metabolizing and stuff, all of that food. So 
you have to redirect a large proponent of your blood to your core. And that's why sometimes you can feel a little bit sleepy because if you're in a parasympathetic nervous state, rest and digest, you are trying to digest that food. It just means that you're going to have less total blood volume in other areas like your muscles and your brain. And you might feel a little bit tired. We've all had a big meal before and then we just want to kind of crash on the couch and take a nap, right? But sometimes getting up and being active and going for a walk, it uh, stimulates you to be a little bit more awake. At least that's what I've found. Have you found that as well? Like not just laying right back, laying down after a big meal, kind of like staying on your feet and do so- doing something. <laughs> yeah, I find that. Although I don't tend to lie down after eating anyway. So yeah, exactly. Maybe sit down there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, certainly that's something to keep in mind. But guys, just have faith in your pancreas to do its thing. You know, if um, if you're healthy and you're active and you're young and yeah, it's it's an awesome organ. You know. <laughs> one of the best it's one of the best man (laughs) okay jack so last question of the day this one says the first and the last thing you would change in a comp prep plan for example diet first or cardio last okay so yeah it's a very broad question and just like any nutrition question it's going to depend on the individual so but typically what we usually do is we do a, a mini cut followed by maintenance or a, a period of surplus and then the the competition prep itself. Mm-hmm. And typically we don't, I mean, if steps are re- really low, like maybe 5,000 a day, which I mean, if they've been working with us prior, they're probably not that low, mm-hmm. but typically it will be a reduction in calories to start and we'll probably leave steps at what they usually do. Like if they usually quit, quite active we'll keep them there if they're if they're below 8,000 I usually bring them up to like 8 to 10,000 but yeah it'll just start off with a energy deficit so, mm-hmm. that, so that's what it will start with with training I won't make I volume won't be super high at the start of a competition prep it'll probably be low to moderate and then it will uh, to leave room to increase volume throughout as intensity drops and so by that do you mean something like like three sets per exercise around there yeah, and probably more so at like the 12 to 15 sets per week mm-hmm. for for each body part. And then the last thing I'd change is it's not really like that. It's more of an ongoing sort of variation in, in altering, altering variables. So, for example, the last thing might change is... T- t- technically, the last thing you would change might be similar to when you would start because, you, for example, with nutrition, you would be... You would drop at first and then you would drop lower and then you would hope towards the end you would start to raise it. Mm-hmm. So the, at, at the end of a prep, it might not be the lowest amount of food you're eating. And the same with steps as well. You would expect at the end of a prep, your steps would be lower than what they would be two thirds or halfway through. So it's it's not kind of the answer you might be expecting. Yeah, exactly. It, it really comes back to uh, planning well ahead, you know, getting ready early so that you don't want to be digging the day before you compete. You don't Mm. want to be digging in peak week, even the week before peak week, you know, generally you want to be ready early. So that digging week might be a few weeks out from your actual competition. Right. And then you and your coach, right. You're like, okay, cool. 
we've made it. You know, obviously we can keep pushing a little bit, but we can, you know, like start adding in a little bit more food, reducing a little bit of cardio, right? Just helping you relax a little bit, reducing some stress Mm. so that you can move into that show and really feel the best you can during that situation. You're not going to feel your best ever because hell, like if you're conditioned, you're not going to feel your absolute best. Uh, But you know, you can certainly feel better than you were probably during those digging phases and you're eating a little bit more food, doing less cardio, just less stress on the body, you know, a little bit more relaxed. So yeah, that's always a nice Mm. thing. But, um, to give you a more, I guess, black and white answer, we usually do change nutrition before we change expenditure Mm -hmm. purely because we want to dedicate most of available energy towards training performance as opposed to other forms of energy expenditure. Yeah, it's one of the easiest things to control. You know, if you can control for energy output, if someone's, you know, generally performing the same amount of training volume per week, they're doing the same amount of steps per day, sleeping the same amount, eating similar amounts of food for their thermic effect of food, right? Nutrition is the best thing that you can control generally to get an outcome and actually see changes uh, compared to like cardio is a tool, you know, um, but it's highly going to depend on a client when you decide to use that tool and to what degree as well. And it highly depends on people's schedules as well, you know, and some people, they're more willing, they have more time. They're like, no, I can do more steps or, you know, I actually, I really love, you know, going on the bike or something like that. If they've got more time and they can do that. They can recover from that. Then that's very client specific. And you can do that while potentially maybe keeping food higher, you know? just to balance out that energy in versus energy out. But that's the thing. It can't, it can't be like, you never know, you know, from 25 weeks out exactly what you're going to do every single day, every single week. And that's, that's the thing why when you're in a comp prep, you need to be working very, very closely alongside a coach, you know, sometimes daily communication because things are changing all the time, right? Or at least they should be if you like, you want to slightly keep adjusting the plan and modifying little, little things, right? And tweaking things if you truly want to bring your best. But if you were to get a 25 week comp prep layout, you know, from a coach that you pay, I don't know, God has much money for, but like you follow that. Yeah, you'll probably get results, but like things happen. Things don't always go to plan and you have to make, you know, smart, educated changes and you need to discuss these things with your coach, right? Uh, so you can't say, you know, decrease food at this week and increase cardio to this amount at this week kind of thing. It doesn't always work out like that. It's, it's a lot nicer on paper, but it's not like that in the real world. And it's not like that in comp prep either. So depends, man, Mm. it all depends. (laughs) All right. So I think, yeah, it's pretty much that for that question. Yeah. So we'll move on to our final question, which is something new that we learned this week and I'll let Tiara kick things off. Cool. All right. So something I learned, I learned this yesterday. I was listening to the uh, Triple J podcast with Science Hour with Dr. Carl. Highly recommend. Again, I love that podcast. I think I got you into that. Yeah, he's he's Dr. Carl. He's just so cool, so enthusiastic, so freaking smart. But this. Oh, yeah. uh, None of our American listeners will know what Triple J is. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Just search on any podcast channel, Triple J. Dr. Carl. Yeah, Yeah. Dr. Carl. Triple J is a radio station. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but someone asked a question yesterday on the telephone line. They asked him if a pregnant mother is put to sleep, you know, under an anesthetic, does that mean that her baby falls asleep too? And I was like, 
wow, I've never thought of that before. And uh, Dr. Carl, pretty much he said that if the anesthetic is lipid-based, uh, and it's lipophilic, that means that it is actually able to cross the membrane into the uterus and it actually can put the baby to sleep, which I thought was so interesting. But generally for, for most, obviously it depends on the pregnant woman what's going on, right? But generally they try to, you know, give painkillers and stuff, but they don't actually want the mother to fall asleep because they don't actually want the baby to fall asleep either. But if they're actually doing a surgery on the baby itself and they have to cut open the uterus and get to the baby, then yes, they will want the baby to have a muscle relaxant so that obviously the baby's not moving during that surgery. But I thought that was so interesting. I've never thought mm, about that, neither. right? Yeah, man, it really makes you think. It's like, as a mother, you know, when you're pregnant, if I do something, is it gonna influence the baby? Like, it's it's really cool, it's really cool. But uh, Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned something that, I mean, is no big surprise, but mm-hmm. it was more just a study that com- confirms the like use of music and exercise performance. Mm-hmm. And it basically compared like a bench press effort and showing that those that listen to their favorite music and music that pump them up resulted in better bench press basically mm-hmm. and yeah it's like if and it it does relate to going to a commercial gym and hearing those really average like edm music <laughs> and and then comparing it to your own favorite music and maybe some people does do like to train to that yeah. but whenever i take like whenever i forget my earphones which unfortunately is quite a few days per week <laughs> and I have to borrow Tierra's like it just doesn't it's nowhere near the comparison of listen, listening to your favorite music yeah well you're lucky I'm a, I'm a generous girlfriend and I let you borrow those headphones for your big sets <laughs> I think they might as well have like radio static on the speakers because I purely think the music is for so you don't hear the person grunting next to you not <laughs> not for anything to do with well having dude a like there's spectrums of this like a gym with music is always better than a pure silent gym. Like yeah. I remember some days working at UQ Sport and the radio was broken and it was just freaking awkward, man. Like pitch silent in the gym and all you heard was, you know, people banging on machines, people breathing and I'm just walking around like like you know like cleaning mirrors or training someone and it's so silent like it's like uq gym was probably the worst music i've ever had (laughs) at a gym because thing with uq is because they're a university like the music was very pc yeah they couldn't have any swearing or anything so it was like 70 80 70s 80s music and dude i feel like i feel like i made a positive change to that place though like because before i started working there right they would actually turn on the radio in the afternoon so they'd have like a freaking talk show on if it wasn't silent it was like a talk show um but then when i started working there like i figured out they actually had an aux cord so yeah i I mean but they then changed that again yeah but like the for, there was like a solid two years there when I when I'd just plug in my phone and I'd mm. play Eminem for people and like actually got feedback like man it's so much better working out now now the actual music's playing or actually good music's playing so I was like thank you <laughs> it's funner to work as well if you've got like a freaking nine hour shift and I'm walking around a three level gym I want to be bouncing around and dancing a little bit I don't want to be just like Eminem. awkward yeah <laughs> you know legit I'd be listening to that stuff at like 11 p.m. at night. Um, but 
I, I know what you mean. Like, but you're very specific with it. Like Jack will like time, like th- with the moment that he starts to do his first rep, like he will time that so that it's exactly when it hits the drop kind yeah. of thing. Like, you know, the seconds on your favorite songs, which mm. I've, I've always yeah, been usually, impressed by. <laughs> I usually stick to five or six songs mm-hmm. that I use for my top sets. And then I'll listen to whatever yeah. after after that you have you have your spotify playlist called top set you know can is that public can people find it oh they should be should be able to yeah how like, will they search it just top set um i they would have to go onto my profile or something so if you have spotify if you want to search jack rs then the playlist is called top set yeah but it's it's not everyone's cup of tea yeah but it's probably is a lot of people's cup of tea a, a lot of people's cup of bench and squat and deadlift too yeah <laughs> All right, guys. So that is the end of our 78th episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And as always, we'll catch you next week. See you guys.